Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals from the Wild West to the mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Part two of the Brinks robbery. So we had the robbery happen, and uh, it's been literally a five-year investigation into uh, FBI trying to track these guys down. Five years. You watch part and one. They go. They're going back to like 1947 for crimes that they did that they can get them with, to, two, just to get them in jail. Two people go to prison. O'Keefe was one of them. He gets out now. He wants his money because he's been shaded by Pino. And um, how he, much money was taken from the robbery? 1.2 in cash and 1.2 million in bonds and money orders and shit. You steal 2.4 million dollars from the government. They don't like that, especially in 1954. That's equivalent to what, like 10? Somewhere in there, yeah, at least. Um, yeah, so O'Keefe gets out of prison. He feels he's been uh, getting screwed over. So he takes another alleged uh, member of the robbery gang, Vincent Costa, um, hostage. And hostage. He, he demands several thousand dollars. Well, he kind of deserves it. He and never then, got his uh, cut. Never got his cut. He spent five years in prison. And where we left off, allegedly other members of the Brinks gang arranged for O'Keefe to be paid a small part of the ransom he demanded. And Costa was released on May 20th, 1954. That's where we leave off. How much was there. the ransom for it? They just said several thousand dollars. And they agreed to, they're arranging to pay him a small part of the ransom. So, mm. well, he leaves, uh, releases Costa on May 20th, 1954. And then after that, special agents subsequently interviewed Costa and his wife, Pino and his wife, the racketeer and O'Keefe, mm-hmm. all denied any knowledge of the alleged incident. Nonetheless, several members of the Brinks gang were visibly shaken and appeared to be abnormally worried during the latter part of May and early June of 1954. So they're uh, either worried that O'Keefe's going to tell on them or they're worried that the, the – um, they, obviously they realized that the FBI is not giving up this right. search and um, investigation. So. Right. They're probably crumbling in the inside, from the inside out. I mean, plus, they're like, O'Keefe, the first place you went was these guys. Was these guys, well, you know that we've been investigating them. Come on. Or investigating all you guys, right. so that was pretty dumb. Right. Um, well, I don't think we've had one um, episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers where it wasn't a dumb criminal. Two weeks of comparative quiet in the gang's members' lives were shattered June 5th, 1954. When an attempt was made on O'Keefe's life. Oh, you know something's going to have to happen there. The Boston Underworld rumbled with reports that an automobile had pulled alongside O'Keefe's car in Dorchester, Massachusetts. During the early morning hours of the 5th of June, apparently suspicious, O'Keefe crouched low in the front seat of his car as would-be assassins fired bullets which pierced the windshield. Hmm. Hmm. Good thing they don't want inside of him. If they were inside of him, he would have been done. So they came head first. Pulled alongside his car, so they were on the side of him. Why were they firing through his window? Oh, that's on. 
clearly they were pretty terrible shots. Right. Instead of firing at the door. Right. Well, <laughs> like, not fire at the door. Oh One God. of them's got to go through. Uh, so now uh, O'Keefe is noticing that, uh, hey, somebody's trying to kill me, obviously. I think he noticed that. Well, unfortunately for him, a second shooting incident occurred on the morning of June 14th, 1954, in the same place when O'Keefe and his racketeer friend paid a visit to Baker. Mm. By this time, Baker was suffering from a bad case of nerves. He's having a nervous breakdown here. Allegedly, he pulled a gun on O'Keefe. Several shots were exchanged by the two men, but none of the bullets found their mark. Baker fled, and the brief meeting adjourned. <laughs> Jeez! So now this Baker guy, now they're just they're just battling each other now. Holy crap! And it gets worse. I'm beginning to think O'Keefe's getting the shaft here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think so because a third attempt on O'Keefe's life was made on the 16th of June in 1954. This incident took place in Dorchester as well, and it involved the firing of more than 30 shots. O'Keefe was wounded in this one. He got shot in the wrist and the chest. But again, he managed to escape with his life in hand. Police who arrived in investigation found a large amount of blood, a man's shattered wristwatch, and a 45 caliber pistol at the scene. Five bullets, which had missed their mark, were found in a nearby building. Who's 45 caliber? You think it was O'Keefe's? I don't it? know. Why does it, it say five bullets, which had missed their mark, were found in a nearby building? They all missed their mark. Besides the one that is. Besides the two that shot him in the wrist and chest. Over 30 bullets. Yeah, How many so. times did he get shot in the chest, though? All right. 27 is times. That, is that O'Keefe's 45? Got shot out of his hand? Could be, yeah. Smash, smash his wrist and right. dropped his uh, gun. And his watch. And his watch. Oh, I get it. Well, on June 17th, the next day, uh, Boston police arrested Elmer Trigger Burke. Oh, his name is Trigger. <laughs> and charged him with possession of a machine gun. Machine gun Elmer Trigger Burke. <laughs> uh, subsequently, this machine gun was identified as having been used in the attempt on O'Keefe's life. The first time, I'm assuming. Uh, Burke, a professional killer, allegedly had been hired by Underworld Associates of O'Keefe to assassinate him. Mm. Well, clearly we knew somebody hired somebody. That Burke guy is gonna, not going to live for very mm. long if he said that. Why would an assassin even say that? It was allegedly. You know, allegedly. Right? I don't so, think he said it. Right. I'm thinking they like, put two and two together here. We know this guy's work. Right. After being wounded on 16th of June, O'Keefe disappeared. I would, too. Just literally a week and had three attempts on your life. I think it's time to get out of Dorchester. Right. August 1st, 1954, he was arrested in Leicester, Massachusetts. Leicester, sorry. Leicester. <laughs> Leicester, Massachusetts. And turned over to the Boston police, who told him, who held him for violating probation on a gun-carrying charge. It must have been his gun, then, or unless he got, he was arrested. O'Keefe yeah, was, so he probably got arrested for the gun that was left at the scene, I'm assuming. I would say O'Keefe was sentenced on the 5th of August, 1954, to serve 27 months in prison. Oh, Jeez, man. dude, and he, he still, still got the other one pending in Pennsylvania. As a protective measure, he was incarcerated in the Hampton County Jail at Springfield, Massachusetts. Who knows how that's pronounced? (laughs) Hampton. Could be be Hampton. Hampton, Hampton. (laughs) Rather than the Suffolk Suffolk County Jail. So they took him to Springfield, and he was like, we don't want you here in Boston. For what reason? Oh, he's probably going to get killed. Took him far away where I'm sure there's, you can't tell me even that far in Springfield, there's not going to be somebody there that wants to kill him. I mean, the underworld stretches. Why won't they take him to uh, where's he got to go for his trials? And then have him be in prison there. Pennsylvania? Yeah. This is uh, Massachusetts. Can't do that. All right. Because Pennsylvania, but I don't know what to tell you. All right. Like, we got then shit. he's going to get contempt of court for not showing up. To <laughs> I his... Oh, no. no I, don't, I, I think they would know <laughs> he's in prison. Right. That would be fucked up, though. You let us know. That would be messed up. Like, you failed to appear. Like, dude, I literally couldn't. I was in prison. I, I think. I think they do have to let him out for like prison or like hearings and shit, though. 
if it's in that city in that city uh, no i think state. i think even i don't know do they if it's in another state i think they wait and that's why these he got picked up the second time after getting out of prison as soon as he got out right, then he had waiting. to go get tried for right. that one right yeah, they're waiting right yeah wow. well either or his racketeer associate who allegedly had assisted him in holding costa for ransom was present during the shooting scrape between o'keefe and baker disappeared on august 3rd 1954 uh, his car was found near his home. However, his whereabouts remain a mystery. Although mm. um, Boston's version of uh, Jimmy Hoppe, huh? Uh, underworld figures in Boston have generally speculated, speculated the racketeer was killed because of his association with O'Keefe. Okay. I think that's a pretty uh, good assumption. I would say so. Unless this dude literally just left and went off the map. Oh. Uh, other members of the, the gang that did the robbery also were having their troubles. I'm sure they were. There's James Ignatius, 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 Ignatius Faraday. Um, first time we're hearing this guy's name, right? James Faraday, an armed robbery specialist whose name had been mentioned in underworld conversations in January of 1950. So five years ago, they already knew about this guy, but concerning a score on which the gang members used binoculars to watch their intended victims count large sums of money. Hey. <laughs> Who says that like that? Right. Who says binoculars? Binoculars. That's what it be. Binoculars? <laughs> binoculars. Binoculars. Anyhow, Faraday had been questioned on the night of the robbery. Faraday claimed he had been drinking in various taverns from approximately, here we go, 510 to 745. Well, at least he started earlier than right. everybody else did. He's like, no, sorry, bud. I was getting hammered, but that by that time, eight I left. I was, I was getting hammered, but I know I left in, at seven forty-five precisely. Though, right? Some persons claim to have seen him. <laughs> continuous. I think, I, I, think I seen Faraday. Right. Continuous investigation, however, had linked him with the gang. Of course, mm. it linked him with the gang. Of course. In thirty-six and thirty-seven, Fer- hold on. Now we're gonna get a little background on <laughs> Faraday, huh? In thirty-six, did we get one before? Uh, Pino? Pino, yeah. In thirty-six and thirty-seven, Faraday was convicted of armed robbery violations. Every single one has been an armed robbery previous violation. So uh, he was paroled in the fall of 44 and remained on parole through March of 54. Wow. When misfortune befell him due to unsatisfactory conduct, drunkenness, refusal to seek employment and association with known criminals, it was per- his parole was revoked. Oh, no. And he was returned to the Massachusetts State Prison seven months later. However, he was again paroled. After 10 years, they're like, dude, 10 years, guy. And this is what you do. You're associating with known criminals. I like it. And you're under investigation for... So it's like you went to rehab for seven months, and they are like, all right. Didn't want to get a job. We'll try and get you, let you out there again. You go to you basically rehab for seven months. They let them... <laughs> usually, like, a thing on your parole, and you got to find a job within the first, like, month or something. I don't know if it was like that back in 1944. Well, that's true, but they still let them go 10 years without finding a job. Ain't that crazy? But then why seven months? I guess. He's like, all right, man, this time I'm good. Could have been the remaining time that his pro was supposed to be uh, up very, in the first possible. place. Very possible. Going back to McGinnis now, that's the store owner. Yeah. He was arrested at a site of a still in New Hampshire in February of 1954, charged with unlawful possession of liquor distillery equipment and violation of eternal revenue laws. He had many headaches during the period in which O'Keefe was given so much trouble to the gang. McGinnis's trial, March 1955, on the liquor charge resulted in a sentence of 30 days imprisonment and a fine of $1,000. Well, that's it's it. not bad. Nice. I'll do it again if I was in. <laughs> well, in the, he can now. Right. In the fall of 1955, 
an upper court overruled the conviction of the ground on the grounds that the search and seizure of the still were illegal. Illegal. So, what is this? what is? So they got away with that, dude. Law enforcement in the thirties, twenties, thirties, forties. Well, since up until now that we've been doing these shows are just terrible, dude. Uh, terrible. Jay, Courts are terrible. Laws terrible. Hoover. Well, that's not even the FBI right here. This is ridiculous. I mean, like that's who the high, the highest guy is. Oh, ridiculous. Well, back to Adolf Maffey, who I think his nickname was Jazz, who had been convicted of income tax violation in June of 1954, was released from the Federal Corrections Institution Institutiony Institution <laughs> Institution at Danbury, Connecticut, yes. on January 30th, 1955. Nice. Uh, two days before his release, another strong suspect died of natural causes. Oh. Who's this? There were recurring rumors that this hoodlum, okay, this hoodlum named Joseph Sylvester Banfield had been right down there on the night of the crime. Mm. Uh, he had been a close associate of McGinnis for many years, although he had not, although he'd been known to carry a gun, burglary rather than armed robbery was his criminal specialty. So he never used weapons. Right. Because, well, isn't burglary? Burglary is when you do it when nobody's home. Uh, and robbery is when you rob somebody while they're there. No, I think burglary is burglary. No, because a burglar is yeah. like somebody that breaks into yeah, people's homes when charged, they're not there. You get charged for burglary, and you get charged for like what? Uh, no, breaking and entering. Burglary is different different than robbery. Robbery involves somebody being there. I think and burglary is when you do it when nobody's right. there. Oh, either way, either way, right? He's a cat burglar. He's a cat burglar. Uh, rather than armed robbery, which which is. Uh, Burglary was his criminal specialty, and his exceptional driving skill was an invaluable asset during criminal getaways. So, yeah, very good. So driving clearly, skills. this tells right. me he was a uh, driver, right? For these, for that robbery, then, right? And then he's like did stupid small stealing stuff on his own time because that's what like he TVs liked to do. and radios right. and shit. That's what he liked to do. I mean, he's gotta have a hobby. Jewelry boxes. Right. Gotta have a hobby. Do what you gotta do, man. You don't always have to drive a car. Mean streets of Boston. Yeah, he's got other uh he's got other accolades. Like the others, Banfield had been questioned concerning his activities on the night of the 17th of January 1950. Of course. He was not able to provide a specific account claiming that he became all he had to do was say I went somewhere at seven o'clock. Right. <laughs> he was like, with the others. Dang, this dude's going back 17 days. He was like, I don't know. I became drunk on New Year's Eve and remained intoxicated through the entire month of January. <laughs> so Holy he could have. Mate. All right. So he's saying, I don't even know if I was a part of the robbery. Right. To be honest I with you. Very well could have because I was a drunk. Oh, but. One of his former girlfriends who recalled having seen him on the night of the robbery stated he definitely was not drunk. Was not drunk. Mm. Damn. Former or. Former, yeah, I mean, you yeah, but if you're drinking so much, would right. somebody be able to know if you're drunk or not? It depends, I guess. Plus, she's a former girlfriend, you can't type, right? Can't trust the uh, slighted women, she's like mm -mm. scorned. He's like, mm -mm. he looked fine to me. Well, I know him when he's drunk, he puts his hands on me, <laughs> right? I ain't got no black eyes, so it must not have been drunk. Uh, even Pino, whose deportation troubles then were heavily were a heavy burden, was arrested by the Boston police oh, in August no. of 1954. Dang. On the op, uh, afternoon of August 28, 1954, Trigger Burke, the guy that uh, supposedly did the hit, escaped from the Suffolk County, County Jail in Boston, where oh, is being held on the gun possession charge, right? That's probably... During the regular exercise period, Burke separated himself from other prisoners and moved toward a heavy steel door leading to the solitary confinement section. 
As a guard moved to intercept him, Burke started to run. The door opened and an unarmed or an armed masked man wearing a prison guard type uniform commanded the guard back up or I'll blow your brains out. Ooh. Burke and the armed man disappeared through the door and fled in an open or an automobile automo- fled in an automobile park nearby. We'll what is this? Home in automobile. What is this? A uh, Wild West breakout? That seems a like a very easy breakout for 1954. Yeah, I mean, in Boston, and a, is it a state penitentiary too? So it's in Boston. It's the county jail. Was it the county jail? Yeah. An automobile identified as a car <laughs> used to escape lo- located near a Boston hospital. Police officer concealed themselves in that area. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. August 29th. Yeah. An automobile identified as a car was located near a Boston hospital. Police officers concealed themselves in that area. All right. August 29th, 1954. The officer's suspicions were aroused by an automobile which circled the general vicinity of the abandoned car on five occasions. Huh. This vehicle was traced through motor vehicle records to Pinu. Oh, okay. Oh, no. August 30th. He was taken into Kentucky. That's the worst kind of custody. I don't want to go to Kentucky. Kentucky City. No. August 30th, he was taken into custody as a suspicious person. Pino admitted having been in the area. I don't think he can deny it. Right. Claiming that he was looking for a parking place so that he could visit a relative in the hospital. After denying any knowledge of the escape of Trigger Burke, Pino was released. Okay. Are they, was there uh, his relative in the hospital? I don't know. You think they would have went up there and be like, hey. You think they would have, but right. could they? I don't know. Trigger Burke was arrested by FBI agents at Folly Beach, South Carolina, 27th of August, 1955. And returned to New York to face murder charges, which were outstanding against him there. He's a, he subsequently was convicted and executed. Executed for murder in New York. Huh? So they got him on the 30th. They got Pino on the 30th and already had uh, Burke in custody. Right. Three days earlier. Dang, they're just trying, still trying to get everybody. They're trying to get huh? Pino. They know Pino's in it. Despite the fact that substantial amounts of money were being spent by members of the robbery gang during 1954 in defending themselves against legal proceedings alone, the year ended without the location of any bills identifiable as part of the Brinks loot. They think it would have like cleaned it, um, swapped it out for something. I don't know how. That's a lot of money. Could have done it overseas or something. And they said that the money orders looking- were never accounted for either. I guess not. Uh, in addition, although violent dissension had developed within the gang, there was still no indication that any of the men were ready to talk. Maybe they sold the money orders to other people and then used that money. Right. Because that would be clean money. 
some like I don't know. They got 102 mil stashed. 1.2 mil. 102 mil. Yeah, 1.2. <laughs> Basically, and they, right? And they sold the other shit, or they could have taken it overseas and got it switched out over there. Right. Because I don't think they're looking overseas for the Mark Bills. No. Well, based on the available information, however, the FBI felt that O'Keefe. However. However, the FBI felt that O'Keefe's disgust was reaching the point where it was possible he would turn against his, com- his confederates. O'Keefe's getting mad. He is. He tried to kill me three times. All right. And he's still only- ain't giving me my money. All right. And he's the only one doing significant uh, jail time besides uh, what's his face? Um, Guccaro. Guccaro still in jail. Yeah. Wow. Well. By this time, one of the guys are dead. So, mm-hmm. I think uh, I think uh, O'Keefe's got it easy <laughs> in that department. Maybe that was it. Maybe these guys couldn't get rid of the bonds and stocks or whatever it was, the money orders and stuff, and they knew they couldn't spend that one point two. Maybe they just didn't have it. And when O'Keefe got up, we're like, dude, if we if we had it, we'd give it to you. I don't think so. But we don't got it. I don't think so. Or at least not the whole one point two million from the. Uh, Money orders, maybe they got four hundred thousand. So each everybody would got like what fifty grand, if that. Still a lot of money. Yeah, back then in the fifties. A lot of fishy stuff going on here. I'd like to figure out what happened to O'Keefe. <laughs> O'Keefe's cut. <laughs> During an interview with him in jail in Springfield, October nineteen fifty four, special agents found that the plight of the missing Boston racketeer was weighing on O'Keefe's mind. December 1954, he indicated to the agents that Pino could look for rough treatment if he again was released. So he's telling agents right there he's going to mess up Pino if he gets out. Why would you say that? Or Pino's going to mess up him. He said, oh, Pino's in for rough treatment. So one of them is going to go and rough him up. Right. Well, from a cell in Springfield, O'Keefe wrote bitter letters to members of the Brinks gang and persisted in his demands for money. Now he's angry. Now he's the mad bomber. So he's doing, uh, yeah, now. (laughs) This dastardly acts <laughs> by, my gang. by my gang. <laughs> the conviction for burglary in McKean County, Pennsylvania, still hung over his head, and legal fees remained to be paid. Right. Well, still paying their legal fees, though, I guess. Mm-hmm. During 1955, he carefully pondered his position. It appeared to him that he would spend his remaining days in prison while his co-conspirators would have many years to enjoy the luxuries of life. Luxuries. There it goes. Even if re- even if released, he thought his days were numbered. There had were. been three attempts on his life in June, obviously, and his frustrated assassins undoubtedly were waiting for him I'm to return to that Boston. He's even living in jail because that would be the easiest. Well, they moved him out of the Boston area. So. Right. Wow. So he knows people are waiting for me. Either to way, he's dying in prison or he's dying on the streets. That's what he's feeling like. Right. Because this. Once he goes to trial for that Pennsylvania stuff, he's getting five to 20 years, like Cicero or whatever his name did. Oh, who knows how old he is? Right. Probably 40s, 50s. So, right. Yeah. Well, evidently resigned to long years in prison or a short life on the outside, O'Keefe grew increasingly bitter towards his old associates as we just, he just wrote terrible letters. All right. Bitter letters. Right. <laughs> Through long weeks of empty promises of assistance and deliberate stalling by the gang members, he began to realize that his threats were falling on deaf ears. Uh-oh. Like, nothing. They, they don't even care if they're even reading them. As long as he was in prison, he could do no physical harm to his Boston criminal associates. He's like, as long as I was in prison, I can't do <laughs> physical harm against my Boston associates. That's what he told the investigators. <laughs> <laughs> And the gang felt that the chances of his talking 
Right. Were uh, non-factor because he would be implicated in the Brinks robbery along with the others. I don't think he cares about that anymore, to be honest with you, because he knows he's going to... I mean, you can do he, immunity. He just said it. I'm spending the rest of my life in prison. Anyway, What's another right. 10, 15 years? Well, two days... Like 20 for that. Well, right. Well, probably more than that. It's federal. Two days after the Christmas of 1955, FBI agents paid another visit to O'Keefe. Oh, man. After a period of hostility, he began to display a friendly attitude. Okay. Interviewed again on December 28th. Christmas time, man. Christmas like, time. Well, he should be hostile. Right. December 28th, they interviewed him again, and he talked somewhat more freely, and it was obvious that agents were gradually winning his respect and confidence. At 4.20 p.m. on January 6, 1956. They weren't regaining his respect or confidence. What he was doing was getting more pissed and pissed every single day, and he's like, you know what? Well, January 6, at 4.20, O'Keefe made the final decision. He was through with Pino, Baker, McGinnis, Maffey, and the other Brinks conspirators who had turned against him. He says, all right, what do you want to know? Well, well, here we go. Oh, dude, their ears perked up. They probably pissed their pants or got a boner. And... You know how they always talk about all it takes is that first domino? That's it. Once that first one falls, they all go falling right after. Once that first one falls. He's a credible uh, witness there. Mm-hmm. In a series of interviews during the succeeding days, O'Keefe related the full story of the Brinks robbery. There it is. After each interview, FBI agents worked feverishly into the night, checking all parts of his story, which were subject to verification. Obviously, you got to go back and... Obviously. Let's see if this is right. And they'd be like, motherfucker, look at this. These guys. Well, I mean, you got to hand it to them. They're pretty good. Many of the details had been previously uh, obtained during the intense six-year so investigation. What he told them is now matching he, what they've already right, found. Put so. them together. Yeah. Other information provided by O'Keefe helped to fill the gaps, which we just said. Yep. Now it's starting to make sense. Mm-hmm. The f- flux capacitor can work right just need a little banana peels and yeah. a couple other things the following is a brief account of the data which will keep provided the special agents in january of 1956 it says although basically the brainchild of pino the bank's robbery was the product of the combined thought and criminal experience of men who had known each other for many years right serious consideration originally had been given to robin brinks in 1947 when brinks was located on federal street in boston at that time a pino Pino approached O'Keefe and asked if he wanted to be in on the score. His close associate, Stanley Guciora, had previously been recruited, and O'Keefe agreed to take part. Right. Uh, the gang at that time included all the participants in the January 17th robbery in, of 1950, except for Henry Baker. Right. Uh, their plan was to enter the Brinks building and take a truck containing payrolls. Many problems and dangers were involved in such a robbery, and the plans never crystallized. Ooh, no crystallization of the plans. No, huh? uh, that is until... Until December 1948. Brinks moved from Federal Street to 165 Prince Street in Boston. Almost immediately, the gang began laying new plans. The roofs of the buildings on Prince and Snow Hill Streets soon were alive with inconspicuous activity. As the gang looked for the most advantages, advantages, advantageous, advantageous. I never heard that word in my whole entire life. You do now. The gang looked for the most advantageous sites. Advantageous. Right. That's a stupid word. No reason for that word ever. Why not? Dumb. Anyway, from which to observe that transpired into Brink's offices. 
binoculars were used <laughs> in this phase of the casing casing operation right. was what was the big who's the famous caser who's the caser what was, was, Dino, was it, it? No, was it Cusiara? oh yeah it was Cusiara. Yeah, yeah he's the caser yeah. before the robbery was carried out all the participants were well acquainted with the brink's premises each of them had sura had sura surreptitiously entered surreptitiously each of them entered the premises each of them had entered the premises on several occasions after employees had left for the day during their forays inside the building members of the gang took the lock cylinders from five doors oh that's how they got into the five doors uh including the one opening onto prince street while some gang members remained in the building to ensure that no one detected the operation others quickly obtained keys to fit the locks okay Ah, huh. that's oh, how. Well, now the mystery of how they got into those doors where the employees were right. uh, is solved. There, All right? Well, then the lock cylinders were replaced. Obviously, uh, investigation to substantiate this information resulted in the location of the property proprietor of a key shop, who recalled making keys for Pino on at least four or five evenings in the fall of 1949. Pini, Pini. <laughs> <laughs> Pino previously had arranged for this man to keep his shop open beyond the normal closing time on the nights when Pino requested him to do so. Mm. Pino would take the locks to the man's shop and keys would be made for him. This man identified locks from doors which the Brinks gang had entered as being similar to the locks which Pino had brought up. He's like, this looks about right. Right. I, I think so. He's got his glasses. All right. Down on his nose, As a matter of you know. fact, I probably have the mold still here somewhere. Right. This man claimed to have no knowledge of Pino's involvement in the Brinks robbery, though. He's like, Pino was probably like, I'll pay you whatever. Keep your, like, hey, man, this guy's bringing me. Keep, uh, keep, your, keep your shop open a few more hours. He was bringing me solid business. All right. Well, each of the five lock cylinders was taken on a separate occasion. The removal of the lock cylinder from the outside door involved the greatest risk of detection. Uh-oh. Obviously, a passerby might notice that it was missing. I don't think anybody's looking at door locks. Right. Uh, they didn't. Apparently not. <laughs> Accordingly, another lock cylinder was installed. And, oh, they installed a fake one until oh. the one that was returned. Um, inside the building, the gang members carefully studied all available information concerning the schedules and shipments uh, at Branks. Branks. The casing operation was so thorough that the criminals could determine the type of activity taking place in the Brinks offices by observing the lights inside the building. Wow. Nice. And they knew the number of personnel on duty at various hours of the day. I mean, these guys are, man, Ocean's Eleven right here, I mean, or whatever it was. Yeah. 12 and 13. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. A few months prior to the robbery, Keith and Gutierrez entered the premises of a <laughs> protective alarm company in Boston. And obtain a copy of the protected plans for the Brinks building. How they do that? Mm. Oh, they did it surreptitiously. <laughs> That's right. right. That's right. being noticed. Secretively. Right. After these plans were reviewed. Yeah. After these plans were reviewed and found to be unhelpful, O'Keefe and Gutierrez returned in the same manner. So they're like, we got put them exact, exactly how they were. Right. McGinnis previously had discussed sending a man to the United States patient patient <laughs> patent office in Washington. He said, I'm going to send this guy down to D.C. to inspect the patents on the protective alarms. Damn, okay, dude, they're going out. You need to go to Washington and do that. How are they going to do that anyway? Oh, you're just going to walk into a. You can go and look up patents and stuff. I guess, right? Why would you have to go to Washington to do it? Well, I guess it's, it's in 1950. That's in the United yeah. States patent office. They didn't have a. Uh, I don't think they have a patent office in. No, it's going to be the United States. They didn't have internet. So. That's what I'm saying. It's not like you could Google it. A considerable thought was given to every detail. 
When the robbers decided that they needed a truck, it was resolved that a new one must be stolen because a used truck might have distinguishing marks. That's cool. That's right. Possibly would not be in perfect running condition. Mm. Good for them. Shortly thereafter, during the first week of November, a 1949 Green Ford Steak Body truck was reported missing by a car dealer in Boston. Uh Why were they doing in Boston, though? You'd think you would go a few towns away or something. Right. Idiots. Well, during November and December 1949, the approach to the Brinks building and the flight over the getaway route, the fight, the flight, yeah, the flight right. over the getaway route were practiced to perfection. Oh, yeah, the month preceding January doing it. 1950 witnessed approximately a half dozen approaches to Brinks. None of these materialized because the gang did not consider the conditions to be favorable. Right. Like the wind's blowing a little bit right. five miles an hour north. You know, it's going to cut down our uh, speed when we're trying to get away. Yeah. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Cannot do it. During these approaches, Costa, equipped with a flashlight for signaling the other men, was stationed on the roof of a tenement building on Prince Street overlooking Brinks. From this lookout post, Costa was in position to determine better than the man below whether conditions inside the building were favorable. Clearly. Right. We have the binoculars. Right. The last false approach took place on the 16th of January. The day before. 1950. The night before the robbery. At approximately 7 p.m. Oh, geez. Yeah. So they can still continue with this. I mean, I guess, right? Well, well this Same is what actually happened at 7 p.m. now. <laughs> this happened at Oh, there 7. we go. Yeah, now we're on the next one. At approximately 7 p.m., January 17th, 1950, members of the gang met in Roxbury, section of Boston. You Boston people know where Roxbury is. Yeah, I'm right? sure you do, right? And, and they're, they're like, too- it's not rotten. No, I'm not just going to do an English sentence. <laughs> and entered the rear of the Ford Stake Body Truck. Right. Banfield. The driver was alone in the front. In the back were Pino, O'Keefe, Baker, Faraday, Maffey, Gutierrez, Michael Vincent Geegan. Why is he first time we hear this? And Thomas Francis Richardson. First time we're hearing this. Also, we're getting two new names. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, Geegan, oh, here we go. <laughs> Geegan and Richardson. Uh, were known associates of other members of the gang who uh, were among the early suspects at the time as well. Okay. Well, at the time of the Brinks robbery, Geegan was on parole, having been, of course he was, released from prison in July of 1943. Eight years he served uh, armed robbery and assault. We'll go mm. figure. Right. Uh, Richardson had participated with Faraday in an armed <laughs> robbery. Of course he did in February of 1934. Oh, yeah, 15 years ago. Come on, guys. Sentenced to serve from five to seven years for this offense. He was released in ago. prison in September of 41. When questioned concerning his activities on the night of January 17, 1950, he claimed that after unsuccessfully looking looking for work, he had several drinks and then returned home. Okay. Geegan claimed that he spent the evening at home and did not learn of the Brinks robbery until the following day. 
investigation revealed that Geegan, a laborer, had not gone to work on January 17th or 18th. Oh, no. Of 1950. So, liar. Liar. Pants on fire. Liar. Wow. During the trip from Roxbury, Pino distributed uh, Navy-type peacoats and chauffeur's hats, right? Chauffeur's yep. caps to the other men, to the other seven men in the rear of the truck. So everybody's getting their little gear. Each man also was given a pistol, a Halloween-type a Halloween mask. Yep, which I'll pop on the screen here. Each carried a pair of gloves, which mm. we thought they did. Yeah, okay. So okay. the gloves, right. no fingerprints on the metal uh, right. um, tape that they had. Uh, O'Keefe wore crepe-soled shoes to Muffa's footsteps. Sold. What the hell does crepe-soled mean? And the others wore rubbers. We've said that before. We did. Well, this is all confirmed by... Uh, this is, all this right here is reading is what O'Keefe told them. Right. <sighs> As the truck drove past the Brink offices, the robbers noted the lights were out on the Prince Side Street of the building. This was in their favor. Mm. Yep. After continuing, continuing up the street to the end of the playground, which adjoined the building... The truck stopped. All but Pino and Banfield stepped out and proceeded into the playground to await Costa's signal. Right. Uh, he was at his lookout post previously, and he previously arrived in a Ford sedan, which the gang had stolen from behind the Boston Symphony Hall two days prior. Nice. So that's awesome. Good for him. Yeah, I don't think him. he needed to take a car. Right. Probably not. He took but... the bus or something. You know. Yeah. Why, why would you not take the bus and be like, right? Get dropped off like six blocks over and over, walk or something. Right. So that way you have. I was on the bus, dude. Got my ticket. Everything. Do you get a bus ticket? I don't think you get a, I don't think you get a ticket for riding ticket, like the man. city bus, right? I would have to uh, carry a piece of paper and have the bus driver sign right, it. For like, me. <laughs> check in for me here. Could you sign this for me, so in case. <laughs> in case shit. I need. Uh, yeah, I need your name, phone number, all that good stuff. After receiving the go-ahead signal from Costa, the seven armed men walked to the Prince Street entrance of Brinks, using the outside door key they had previously obtained. The men quickly entered the donned. The Don quickly entered and donned their mask. The other keys in their possession enabled them to proceed to the second floor where they took the five Brinks employees by surprise. Oh, of course they did. They didn't know. They didn't know. I don't know. How the hell did you guys get in there? What is on your face? <laughs> uh, they carefully planned the their carefully planned routine inside Brinks was interrupted only when the attendant in the adjoining Brinks garage sounded the buzzer, which we oh, uh, went no. through there um, before they could take him prisoner, though he walked mm-hmm. away. And he didn't know the robbery was taking place. No. Um, it caused them to move faster after that, though. So before fleeing with the bags of loot, the seven armed men attempted to open a metal box containing the payroll of the General Electric Company. They had brought no tools with them and were unsuccessful. Mm. You got to bring those tools, man. Yeah. Wasn't one of them? Didn't one of them get caught with um, burglary tools yeah. before? So why yeah. would you not bring those? Uh, immediately upon leaving, the gang loaded the loot in the truck, which was parked on Prince Street near the door. As the truck sped away with nine members of the gang and Casa departed in the stolen Ford, the Brinks employees worked themselves free and reported the crime. Oh. So that's all how it went down, huh? Good. Right. Good. Okay. Before removing the remainder of the loot from the house on the 18th of January, 1950, the gang members attempted to identify incriminating items. Incriminating? Right. Incriminating. <laughs> you say, okay. Incriminating. You said incriminated. Extensive efforts were made to detect pencil markings and other notations on the currency, which the criminals thought might be traceable to Brinks. Even fearing the new bills might be linked with the crime. Didn't they have um, serial numbers? I don't know. (laughs) Even fearing the new bills might be linked with the crime. Again, they suggested they process for aging the new money in a hurry. Right, because that shit was like crisp bills and stuff, dude. 
On the night of January 18th, 1950, O'Keefe and Gutierrez received $100,000 each for the robbery. So O'Keefe already had 100 G's then. Oh, right. So what's he want? They put the tire 200000 oh. in the truck O'Keefe's automobile. O'Keefe left his car and a $200,000 in a garage on Blue Hill Avenue in Boston. Sure, he probably never got to go back to it. And it's probably not there anymore. Well, no somebody found $200,000. Right. <laughs> During the period oh, wow. immediately following the robbery, the heat was on O'Keefe and Gutierrez. That's when okay, he so now I don't really like O'Keefe for coming back and be like, you owe me this money. I'm like, no, dude, you dumbass. Well, you left it in your car. Right. Still, it was only 100 grand. He probably was old more at least. At least another 100. Or at least two. Uh, the heat was on O'Keefe and Gusiora. That's when he were, him and him, him and him were taken into custody by uh, state authorities in the latter part of January. O'Keefe got, got word to McGinnis to recover his car and the oh. 200 grand. Oh, see. Jumping to conclusions there, were you? O'Keefe got word to McGinnis to, to recover okay. his car and the 200 grand, which it contained. A few weeks later, he retrieved his share of the loot. What? So he ended up getting it. It was given to him in a suitcase. It was transferred to his car from an automobile occupied by McGinnis and Banfield. Okay. Later, when he counted the money, he found the suitcase contained 98000 He had been shortchanged by two. Okay, so what? What do you mean, so what? It's two grand. All right, but so, I mean, okay, you can, hey. It's two grand. Well, you can get together and be like, hey, man, that was two grand short. Right, two grand short, dude. Right. O'Keefe had no place to keep a, uh, he had no place to keep such a large sum of money. He told interviewing agents that he trusted Maffey uh, so implicit, implicitly that he gave him the money. And he said, keep it safe. safe. <laughs> <laughs> Except for five grand, though. No, of course. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, which he took before placing the loot in Maffey's car. Uh, Why don't you take at least 10? Right. Well, so he still got 95,000, right? 92,000. Something like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. 92. 90, yeah, 92. Yeah. 93,000. Yeah, that sucks. O'Keefe angrily stated he was never to see his share of the Brinks money again after that. Well, Maffey claimed that the part of the money had been stolen from its hiding place. Did it, though. <laughs> and the remainder had been spent in financing O'Keefe's legal defense in Pennsylvania. Okay. Sure. The other gang members accused Maffey of blowing the money. What are you doing? Check out my papers. So the other gang members were like, nah, Maffy blew this. He was, he was buying strippers and... Uh, Accused Maffy of blowing yeah, money. He was buying strippers and... and Anything he can. Jameson for everybody. and Why everybody. Jameson? Because it's Irish. Well, did they have it back then? Sure did. And uh, all that good stuff, man. It's Jameson Irish. It's Irish whiskey, right? I think so, right? Jameson. Sure, yeah. Well, of course, O'Keefe was bitter about a number of matters, but the money first... I mean... <laughs> Can't have nothing. Why? What else would I mean? You took two grand first, and then right. got nothing. Not in my other ninety-three grand. Right. First took, of all, you should have took more than five grand. As I told you, at least ten. All of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have no place to keep it. You got a trunk? Right. Yeah. Keep it in your trunk. All of it. Jeez. Well, then there was the fact that so much dead wood was included. McGinnis, Banfield, Casa, and Pino were not in the building when the robbery took place. Oh. O'Keefe was enraged that the pieces of a stolen Ford truck had been placed on the dump near his home. I told you that in the, in the part one, don't shit where you eat. And he generally regretted having become associated at all with several members of the gang. I mean, that would happen. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but right. before the robbery was committed, the participants had agreed that if anyone muffed, he would be taken care of. Oh. O'Keefe felt that most of the gang members had muffed. Right. <laughs> Talking to the FBI was his way of taking care of them all. Mm. I mean, it always happens like that, right? They right. screw somebody over, and this is my way to get back at them. Right. 
January 11, 1956, the United States Attorney at Boston authorized special agents of the FBI to file complaints charging 11 criminals with one conspiracy to commit theft of government property, robbery of government property, and bank robbery by force and violence and by intimidation, two, committing bank robbery on 17, 1950 of January, and committing an assault on Brinks employees during the taking of the money, and three, conspiracy to receive and conceal money in violation of the bank robbery and theft of the government state property. In addition, government property statute. Right. In addition, McGinnis was named in two other complaints involving the receiving and concealing of the loot. Gee, six members of the game, Baker, Casa, Geegan, Maffey, McGinnis, and Pino were arrested by FBI agents. Finally, January, six years. January later. 12, 1956, almost six years to the date. Wow. They were held in lieu of bail for, uh, which for each man amounted to more than a hundred grand. Three of the remaining five gang members were previously (laughs) accounted for. O'Keefe and uh, Gussiera in prison. The other one died. Banfield died. Uh, Faraday and Richardson fled to avoid apprehension and subsequently were placed on the list of the 10 most wanted FBI fugitives. So uh, really? Yeah, sir. Wow. Their, Their success in evading arrests ended abruptly. May 16, 1956. When four FBI, months, what, right, four months later, right? When FBI agents raided the apartment in which they were hiding in Dorchester, Massachusetts, why, why would they still be there? Massachusetts, they're dude. idiots. At the time of their arrest, Faraday and Richardson were rushing for three loaded revolvers. They got to get those revolvers. Uh, where they had left on a chair in the bathroom. Why are they leaving them on a chair in the bathroom? Right? Would you put the Would you put the guns here in the chair in the bathroom? <laughs> All right. Had also. The hideout also was found to contain more than $5,000 in coins. The arrest of Faraday and Richardson also resulted in an indictment of another Boston hoodlum as an accessory for the fact. After the fact? Yeah. Uh, as a cooperative measure, the information gathered by the FBI and the Brinks investigation was made available to the district attorney of Suffolk County, Massachusetts on January 13th, 1956. Right. Uh, uh, Suffolk County Grand Jury returned indictments against the 11 members of the Brinks gang. O'Keefe was a principal oh, no. witness to appear before the state grand jurors. Now it's about to get juicy. Right. Now O'Keefe's going to be up there. Juicy. Looking at everybody in the eyes. Wow. And can you point to us, the men that you were with that day? I sure can. Sure. that I sure damn well I can. I sure can. Despite their arrest indictments in January, more than 2,775,000 million including one million two hundred eighteen thousand two hundred and eleven twenty nine cents in cash in cash was still missing mm-hmm. O'Keefe did not know where the other gang members had hidden their shares of the loot or where they had disposed of the money if in fact they had disposed of their shares. We don't know if they disposed of it. This could be somewhere. The other gang members would not talk. Obviously. Obviously. Well, in early June of 1956, however, however, an unexpected break developed at approximately 7.30 p.m. Uh, 7, 7 oh, o'clock and 7.30, man. About this, um, yeah. uh, it's always happening on June jury's going to come back with the, <laughs> a decision. Uh, at about 7, 7 p.m. Uh, on uh, 7.30 p.m. on June 3rd, 1956, an officer of the Baltimore, Maryland Police Department was approached by the operator of an amusement arcade. Mm. I think a fellow just passed a counterfeit $10 bill on me, he told the officer. Wow. Okay, so, oh, all right. Okay. What are we going to have here? Examining the bill, the officer observed that it was it was musty. It was a musty condition. Ooh, it was a musty condition. This is weird. The amusement arcade operator told the officer that he had followed the man 
who passed this $10 bill to a nearby tavern. This man, identified as a small-time Boston underworld figure, was located in question. While the officer and amusement arcade operator were talking to him, the hoodlum reached into his pocket, quickly withdrew his hand again, and covered his hand with a raincoat he was carrying. (laughs) What do you think is going to happen there? Oh, got a gun. Not what you think. Oh, two other Baltimore police officers were walking along the street nearby. Noted this maneuver. One of these officers quickly grabbed the criminal's hand, and a large roll of money fell from it. Oh, oh he was taken to police headquarters, <laughs> where a search of his person disclosed he was carrying more than a thousand dollars, including eight hundred and sixty in musty worn bills. Oh. A Secret Service agent who had been summoned by the Baltimore officers arrived while the criminal was being questioned. And after examining the money, found it in the bill. After examining the money, he certified that it was not counterfeit. This underworld character told the officers that he had found this money. This underworld character, by the way, right. don't even get his name. Right, he was with the others. He's several others, man. Several others. <laughs> he claimed there was a large roll of bills in his hotel room. Huh. They had found that he said he found the money as well. The criminal explained that he was in the contracting business in Boston and that in late March or early April 1956, he stumbled upon a plastic bag containing this money while he was working on the foundation of a house. It's completely plausible. It is plausible. A search of the hoodlums room. <laughs> What's up with these words, dude? Hoodlums and what? Hoodlums and... What was um, the guy's other? What was he? Hoodlums and underworld, underworld character. character. <laughs> I mean, this is straight from the FBI's website. Right. So this, these guys are typing it up. Like right. A search of the Hoodlums room in Baltimore, uh, registered under under an assumed name, by the way, resulted in location of $3,780, which the officers took to police headquarters. Okay. At approximately 9.50 p.m., the details of this incident were furnished to the Baltimore field office of the FBI. Much of the money taken from the money changer appeared to have been stored a long time. Obviously, oh, very long time. Serial numbers of several of these bills were furnished to the FBI office in Baltimore. Huh. Okay, they were checked against serial numbers of bills known to have been included in the Brinks loot, and it was determined that the Boston criminal possessed part of the money, which had been dragged away by the seven masked gunmen on the day of the robbery. Yeah, but that's still possible either. So, how's this guy got these bills that are? Did they exchange that money with real money? I think they had to have something, dude. Something yeah, happened. So it has to be out. Something happened. So somebody's right? gonna get it, unless he really did find it and uh, some somebody stashed it somewhere. Very one possible. of them stashed it. Of the four thousand eight hundred twenty-two dollars found in the small-time criminal's possession, FBI agents, FBI agents identified four thousand six hundred thirty-five dollars of it as money. That it was the, it was the Brinks money. Wow! So most of it was. Yes, that would be it. <laughs> right. Interviews with him on the third of June and the fourth of June in 1956 disclose disclosed that his 31 year old hoodlum had a record of arrests and convictions dating back to his teens. Why did I don't understand? And that he had been conditionally released from a federal prison camp less than a year before. Mm. Having served slightly more than two years of a three-year sentence for transporting a falsely made security interstate. What's a falsely made security falsely interstate? Falsely made security interstate. And I why can't you transport no, it? I have no idea. At the time of his arrest, there was also a charge of armed robbery outstanding against him. We'll take that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll take that well, we'll take that one. Uh, during questioning, uh, the money changer stated that... The money changer stated that... What the hell is all these adjectives to describe these guys? Um, <laughs> the money changer stated that he was in business as a mason contractor with another man on Tremont Street in Boston. 
He advised that he was uh, his associate shared. He advised that he and his associate shared office space with an individual known to him only as Fat John. Fat John. According to the according to the the Boston hoodlum <laughs> on the night of June first, nineteen fifty six, Fat John asked him to rip a panel from a section of the wall in the office. When the panel was removed, he reached into the opening and removed the cover from a metal container. Okay. Inside were packages of bills that had been wrapped in plastic and newspapers. All right. He announced that each of the packages contained five thousand. He says five grand. This is good money. Good money. But you can't pass it around here in Boston. Nope. Can't do that in Boston. Nope. You gotta go elsewhere. Apparently, you can't do it in Baltimore either. Yeah, they should have went further than that. I mean, come on. They should have went either further south to like Florida or went west well, quite a ways. If this dude's telling the truth, he didn't know. All right. According to the criminal who was arrested in Baltimore, <laughs> Fat John told so him he's that. He's now been referred to <laughs> as the money changer, the Boston hoodlum, the hoodlum, the um, the uh, whatever the hell they else said, and then the criminal who was arrested in Baltimore. <laughs> Anyway, oh, geez. Oh, he puts geez. that on a business card. Right, the, the criminal who was arrested in Boston or Baltimore. Fat John told him that the money was part of the Brinks loot and offered him five grand if he would pass thirty thousand of the bills out of twenty five. Offered him five thousand if he would pass thirty thousand of the bills. Right. Change what does that it. mean? Change it. Change it around. Oh, in his business or however, and he'll give him five extra grand. I get right. You get me thirty, and I'll give you five. Mm. The Boston hoodlum told FBI agents in Baltimore that he accepted six of the packages from Fat John. The following day, 2nd of June, 1956, he left Massachusetts with $4,750 of these bills and began passing them. Getting them in circulation, right? right? He arrived in Baltimore on the morning of June 3rd, and he was picked up by the Baltimore police that evening. Shouldn't have went to Baltimore. The full details of this important development were immediately furnished to the FBI office in Boston. Fat John and the business associate of the man arrested in Baltimore were located and interviewed on the morning of June 4th, 1956. Both denied knowledge of the loot, which had been recovered, of course. The same afternoon, um, a search warrant was executed in Boston covering the Tremont Street offices occupied by the three men. The wall partition described by the Boston criminal was located in Fat John's office. And when the partition was removed, a picnic-type cooler was found. Cooler contained more than $57,700, including $51,906, which was identifiable as part of the Brinks loot. Mm. Okay. Here we go. It's all coming together now. Yep. So what they got, um, roughly 60000 of the uh, Brinks loot so far out of $1.2 million. Right. The discovery of the money in Tremont Street offices resulted in the arrest of both Fat John and the business associate of the criminal who had been arrested in Baltimore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Both men remained mute following their arrests. June 5th and 7th of June, the Suffolk County Grand Jury returned indictments against all three men, charging them with several state offenses, including their possessing money obtained of the Brinks robbery. All it took was $50,000. 50000 Well, really, all it took was... Really, all it took was ten dollars. Right, ten dollars. That the guy thought it was, um, counterfeit. Right. That one ten dollar bill brought down the whole thing. Whole thing. thing. Whole thing. Well, following pleas of guilty in November 1956, Fat John received a two year sentence, and the other two men were sentenced to serve one year. Oh, that's not bad. Right. After serving sentence, but how do they know? Do they know how they got the money? I don't think they cared. They just had it. I guess how that. How are you going to charge somebody with? Well, I guess they said that. He said Fat John told him it was part right. of the Brinks loot, but right. now they know, I guess, but 
okay, never mind. I take back what I was going to say. I was going to say, how do they know that they they were passing off illegal money? Right. After serving a sentence, Fat John resumed a life of crime. <laughs> of course he did. He didn't even stop it when he was in prison. 19th of June, 1958. While out on an appeal in a connection with a five-year narcotic sentence, he was found shot to death in an automobile. Automobile. Which had crashed into a truck in Boston. Mm-hmm. Live by the gun, die by the gun. Mm-hmm. The money inside the cooler, which was concealed in the wall of the Tremont Street office, was wrapped in plastic and newspaper. Three of the newspapers used to wrap the bills were identified and all had been published in Boston between December 4th, 1955 and February 21st, 1956. So that's not even, that's still well, six years after right. the robbery. Well, yeah. uh, the FBI also succeeded in locating the carpenter who had remodeled the offices where the loot was hidden. Oh, shit. <laughs> his record oh, shit. his record showed he had worked on the offices in early april of 1956 under instructions of fat john mm. uh the loot could not have been hidden behind the wall panel prior to that time wow wow they went back and got the the, the freaking drywall guy <laughs> so they wrapped him in papers published between december 4th and february 21st but the guy didn't work on the office until april of 1956 so the loot wasn't even hidden there until then. So this guy, he had to have instructed this guy to build something behind right, there, right? Right. I would say so. Right. Hmm. Because the money in the cooler was in various stages of decomposition. Isn't that crazy? Money just decomposes. Right. An accurate count proved most difficult to make. We can't make an accurate count. Some of the bills were in pieces. Others fell apart as they were handled. I mean, come on. How do you expect to count this shit? Examination by the FBI laboratories disclosed that the decomposition discoloration and matting together of the bills were due at least in part to the fact that all the bills had been wet mm. clearly so where was it was it dug somewhere it was, was it ground. stored somewhere in the ground under the ground and they didn't wrap it idiots it was positively concluded and concluded it was positively concluded that the packages of currency had been damaged prior to the time they were wrapped in obviously there are indications that the bills previously had been in a canvas container, which was buried in the ground consisting of sand and ashes. There we go. Uh, in addition to mold, insect remains also Oh, jeez. Even the recovery of this money in Baltimore and Boston, more than 1,000 or 1,150,000 of currency taken in Brinks robbery remained unaccounted for. Uh-huh. Well, the recovery of part of the loot was a severe blow to the gang members who still awaited trial in Boston, obviously. Had any particles of evidence been found in the loot which might directly show that they had handled it? We don't right. know. We don't know. This is the question we that which preyed heavily upon their minds. In July 1956, another significant turn of events took place. What Uh-oh. Stanley Gusiora, who had been transferred to Massachusetts from Pennsylvania to, to stand trial, was placed under medical care due to weakness, Uh-oh. dizziness, and vomiting. Uh-oh. On the afternoon of July 9th, he was visited by a clergyman. During this visit, he got up from his bed and in full view of the clergyman, slipped to the floor, striking his head. Two hours later, he was dead. Wow. Examination revealed the cause of death to be a brain tumor and acute cere- cerebral edema. Wow. Dang, so he's gone. This guy had oh. a brain tumor, didn't even know it. Right, and this is O'Keefe's like, best friends, dude. O'Keefe and Gutierrez had been close friends for many years. When O'Keefe admitted his part in the Brinks robbery to FBI agents, uh, FBI agents in January 1956, he told his high regard for Gutierrez. As a government witness, he reluctantly would have testified against him. Sure, what not? Gutierrez now had passed beyond the reach of all human authority. Mm-hmm. And O'Keefe was all the more. Right, so now right. O'Keefe doesn't have any reservations because 
Luciora, right. he, he can't hurt him now, so right. he's going all out on the rest well, of the guys. Uh-oh. Now I can tell you what. Oh, right. Deals. With the death of Gusiora, the only only eight members of the Brinks gang have remained to be tried. On January 18, 1956, O'Keefe had pleaded guilty to the armed robbery of Brinks. Uh, the trial of these eight men began. Eight men began. Oh, so that O'Keefe didn't even have a trial. Hey, he guilty. So you're like, yeah. Um, uh, the trial began on August 6, 1956, before Judge Feliz Forte in the Suffolk County Courthouse in Boston. Uh, the defense immediately filed motions which would delay or prevent the trial. Mm-hmm. All were denied, and the impaneling of nice. the jury was begun on August seventh. So it happened. It was like, no, sorry, guys, uh, we've been we've been doing this shit for six years, dude. Mm-hmm. We ain't we, no, we're getting it on. Nope, getting it on. In the next two weeks, nearly twelve hundred prospective jurors were eliminated as the defense counsel used their two hundred sixty-two preemptory challenges. Another week passed, and approximately five hundred more were considered. Before the 14-member jury was assembled, more than 100 persons took to the stand as witnesses for the prosecution and the defense during September 1956. The most important of these was O'Keefe. Carefully recited the details of the crimes, clearly spelling out the role by each of the eight defendants. And at 10.25 p.m. on the 5th of October 1956, jury retired to weigh the evidence. They're like, we're going to retire to weigh the evidence, judge. Three and three and one half hours later, so three and a half hours later, <laughs> the verdict had been reached. We, the defendant, we the defendant, we the defendant, <laughs> find the guilty or find the jury guilty. We, the jury, find all defendants guilty as charged, and they were. And they were. The eight men were sentenced by Judge Forte on October 9, nineteen fifty six. Uh, Pino, Costa, Maffey, Geegan, Faraday, Richard, and Baker received life sentences for robbery, two-year sentences for conspiracy to steal, and sentences of eight to ten years for breaking and entering at night. Oh, my. So, life plus those. Yep. McGinnis, who had not been at the... Life is only 25 years, though. Uh, McGinnis, who had not been at the scene on the night of the robbery, received a life sentence on each of eight indictments. Holy shit. Which charged him with being an accessory before the fact in connection with the Brinks robbery. In addition, he received other sentences of two years, two and a half years, and eight to ten years. Wow. These guys got hammered. Okay, I, I need to know what O'Keefe got. These guys got hammered. What happened to O'Keefe? Huh? Right. While well, action to appeal the convictions was being taken on their behalf, the eight men were moved to the state prison at Walpole, Massachusetts. Yeah, so they're going to Walpole, guys. You're going to Walpole. From the prison cells, they carefully followed the legal maneuvers aimed at gaining them freedom. The record of the state trial covered more than 5,300 pages. It was used by the defense counsel in preparing a 294-page brief, which was presented to the Massachusetts State Supreme Court. After weighing the arguments presented by the attorneys for the eight convicted criminals, the Supreme Court turned down the appeals on July 1, 1959. In a 35-page decision written by the Chief Justice, November 16, 1959, the United States Supreme Court denied a request of defense counsel of a writ of certiorari, 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 certiorari. What's a certiorari? What is a writ of certiorari? Appeal of course decides to review a case at its discretion. The word certiorari comes from law Latin. It means to be more fully informed. Um, uh, it orders a lower court, court to deliver its record in a case so that the higher court may review it, and they denied it. And they denied it. So, okay. uh, I get it. 
All were paroled by 1971, except McGinnis, who died in prison. Mm. Um, O'Keefe received four years and he was released in 1960. Wow. He got four years. Four years. That's it. Uh, only 58,000 of the 2.7 million was recovered. O'Keefe cooperated with writer Bob Considine on The Men Who Robbed Brinks in 1961, as told to book about the robbery and its aftermath. I mean, so he did four years for that and he did years upon years before. Well, you no, he only did five years right, five. Uh, for the one, so they did nine years total. Everybody nine else got years. life, dude. Life, eight of the gang's members received maximum sentence of life, life. imprisonment. All were paroled by 1971, though. So 56 to 71, so they still only served 15 years, All right? Except for McGinnis, he died before he could get out. If you want to see a movie's uh based or partially based on the Great Brinks robbery, you can watch Six Bridges to Cross, which was made in 1955, yes, before the verdict even came out, right. Uh, Blueprint for Robbery, yeah, uh, 1961. Brinks, The Great Robbery in 1976. And The Brinks Job in 1978. Nice. I will watch all of those movies. I find it hard to believe nothing was made after 1978. What the hell, you know? Yeah. There was also another Brinks Robbery in 1981, which we, I'm sure, we'll get to. Right. So, um, which carried out by six black Liberation Army members. Uh-oh. Uh, and, and three related murders committed uh, oh, during this. no. They murdered so, people? That's in 1981, so I'm sure we'll get there. Well, with that being said, we are, <laughs> we are an hour and 24 minutes into this one. And you Patreon folks, if you're listening on or watching on Patreon, you're going to get all hour and 25, which means hour and 25 of part one, hour and 25 of part two. So three smacking hours of uh, the great Brinks robbery. And for you podcast listeners out there, you're probably going to get at least two hours altogether. At least. Um, with that being said, yeah, Patreon, all you guys listening on the podcast, we are officially launching patreon.com forward slash bang dang on January 1st, ni- or 1922, <laughs> 2022. Um, we're, you're going to get all these shows, including Outlaws and Gunslingers. Gun, gun <laughs> fucking it up. Outlaws and Gunslingers on video, unedited, F-words galore, and all of our stupid little conversations in between that don't get included on the podcast that you're listening to now. Right. So make sure you go to patreon.com forward slash bang dang to sign up for that. It's only $2 a month. You get Outlaws and Gunslingers, Monday Night Wards Along, plus Lee and Corey on the case, all in video, all $2. unedited. $2, here. $2 a month, that's all. Get that's all. So uh, patreon.com forward slash bang dang, and we will be back next week for something hopefully that doesn't take us three hours to do. Patreon.com forward slash bang dang. We'll be back next week. We're the Monthly Michiganders with bang dang. <laughs>